Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the program is Carlos Quezada, Vice President of Customer Experience Strategy at Hewlett Packard Enterprises. He joins us on the program to talk about building customer journeys simultaneously from the B2B and infrastructure perspectives. Later, we talk about how friction in customer journeys predicates a balance between automation and humans in the loop of critical workflows they're in. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks so much, Carlos, for being with us on the program this week. No, thank you. Appreciate appreciate you guys having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. From your vantage point at Hewlett Packard Enterprises, this is, you know, you guys split from HP Incorporated 2015. You have a very distinct way of looking at a lot of, you know, B2B spaces. When you think of the challenges facing those leaders, especially when it comes to driving digital transformation across the customer lifecycle, what comes to mind? Yeah, I think is, you know, as take a look at, you know, this whole concept of customer success and kind of the way that that industry is developed, it's very familiar in the B2C space. And so how do we go and take some of those kind of learnings and apply it into the B2B space, right? How do you go and you drive, you know, that digital transformation and that customer engagement when you have a three-tier distribution system? So I think it's being able to kind of translate some of the lessons learned from the software business. And in our case, it's even more unique because it's a combination of software and hardware with distributors in the channel in between. So it's really around kind of understanding how you can go in and be inclusive of the channel community as you're trying to drive this direct digital engagement with your end customers. You mentioned that you guys specialize both in the hardware and software element. I think everybody's used to thinking of data from the software element, from where you know the functionality is. But tell us a little bit about the hardware, especially the server side, what they need from an infrastructure standpoint you know, to start what enterprises need to have invested in the first place in order to start capturing these signals. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, if you think about it historically, right, HPE is known for a lot of their, their storage and compute business. And when those products were designed, they weren't necessarily designed with, you know, consumption analytics and telemetry and instrumentation in mind, right? You build this product to go and solve a need, but you don't have some of these phone home capabilities. And so I start thinking about, how you go in and start creating new service offers, being more prescriptive and proactive, the need to be able to have visibility into how customers use your product is increased, right? And so, you know, we have this kind of combination of products where, you know, they're kind of more of the traditional model where, you know, you sell a box, you get shipped and you never hear from it again, it's out in the wild. And then in other cases where the product is actually kind of more recently been designed in such a way where it's connected back to the cloud somehow and you have more visibility and so for us, it's how do we go in and, and provide that kind of single pane of glass, a single experience for the customer, knowing that we have both of these models out in the field, right? And so, and the, you know, the way that we approach that is, you know, based on historical learnings, we may not have access to all the data that the customer has, but we also know, and we know what we can expect from, you know, a customer, how long should it take a customer to set, it, set an equipment up, even though it's not phone home? We can do time-bound engagements as opposed to proactive data-led engagements. Yeah, that's that's interesting, especially where you're collecting how the customers are setting it up themselves. It almost sounds like something like probably IKEA has has some idea about it. Like you have to know 
how long it's taking the customer themselves to to set something up. It's interesting to even look at it just both from an infrastructure standpoint and a signal standpoint and and see how they correspond. You're almost kind of jumping a, a, a few ahead on my questions here. But just across that customer life cycle, where do you see data entering to help solve those challenges and really help fill in those blanks between, you know, the infrastructure as we've gone about it, you know, the last 30 years of we know the basic needs and now having systems in place where we know more what the customer wants out of the service and where we can make their lives easier and building it around that. So, I mean, I would start with maybe a little bit of background, right? So when I started at this company, I started on the Aruba side, you know, about six years ago. And when I started, you know, my role was was very vague. I was, you know, business operations and service PLM, but my background had been in service and support for the last 20 something years and, you know, mostly startups. And then also worked for a number of startups doing big data analytics and machine learning. And so I was able to really bring both of those, both of those experiences together. But the reason I say going back is, you know, as we, as we started kind of building this team and actually founding this concept of customer success within Aruba, you know, customer success, as TSAA kind of calls it, is really founded on this, T- this layer model, land, adopt, expand, renew. And so our focus area then had always started at the land phase, meaning that the customer has purchased, now what, right? How do we get them to quickly accelerate their time to value and onboard and then start adopting? And so I would say over the last four or five years, we've done a pretty decent job of building out the mechanics of what that looks like. But to answer your question about where do we feel data comes in and where where it can add a lot of value, I've been over the last year and a half, two years, I've talked about this whole shifting left concept, meaning that a lot of the capabilities that we built for customer success to onboard a customer are absolutely relevant, even in the pre-sales, right? And, and, you know, it would be a shame to keep them to ourselves and not make them available for the rest of the company. And so as demonstrated by the recent shift in my team, my team has now kind of been lifted and shifted out of Aruba and brought in into into HPE and centralized to bring that framework and that kind of data mind thought process into the rest of the business. And so now we think about, you know, what we normally would call journey mapping. Our journey mapping exercises historically would start on the onboarding phase after the customer purchase. Now we're, we're, we're shifting left in the life cycle saying, you know, what can we do when the customer is in the pre-sales phase, the learning and the trying phase? If you think about it, the information that we collect about a customer's adoption and the consumption that they're doing after they're a customer is super relevant for somebody that's going through a trial. Why wouldn't we take that same model and make that information available, for example, to an inside sales rep? So they have visibility on how often a customer is logging into this demo system. What features are they using? You know, we can we can start predicting where this customer is actually going to convert or not. And so to answer your question, I actually think that it's throughout the entire life cycle. And, you know, as demonstrated, for example, by the Amazon experience, right? You know, even during procurement and shipping, like I want to know how many steps away my server is, as an example, right? Why wouldn't we, why couldn't we get to that point? Why couldn't we leverage the data that already exists to really provide that level of transparency and improved experience to the customers? Yeah, you bring up logistics in a very interesting sense as a parallel right there. And I think that's effective to to even ask, you know, especially from your vantage point. I know we're talking distinctly about B2B, but do you think it might it might only be possible or rather that it's easier to detect pre-sale signals in B2B than it is in other sectors? Or is this technology much more applicable in a widespread sense? 
I think we break up technology and I would say framework because I think in situations where technology is, is maybe not available, there's processes in place to kind of overcome that lack of technology. And so the way I, I've been looking at this is, you know, let's go and understand what current state is, figure out what the friction points, what data do we have and don't we have, and what kind of assumptions can be made. And then in a longer term strategy, let's figure out ways to plug in technology to maybe automate and accelerate some of those, right? So I think it's a little bit of both. And, and to your point, I do think that B2B is learning a lot from B2C and, we're, and at least I personally feel like I've been kind of stretching the capabilities of a lot of the vendors that I work with to really push to bring some of that B2C experience into B2B. Yeah, in many ways, not not unilaterally, but in many ways, I think the two are beginning to resemble each other, at least where AI capabilities make a big difference. You mentioned automation there. I'm wondering in, in these spaces where you see the split coming down just in the process where it takes on more automation and where it takes on more human supervision. Where do you see that sussing out, especially as we go forward in the next few years of these AI capabilities becoming more ubiquitous in the market? Yeah, I would say one of the drivers, you know, for us, it's it's interesting. I feel like, you know, initially when we constructed our customer success program at Aruba, it was a very grassroots effort, right? It wasn't it wasn't something that was like funded. We were kind of building it out and proving our point and evangelizing the need for this. So it wasn't like we had, you know, all this budget to go in and build this thing out. We it was kind of Trojan horse, right? And so initially, I would say even from an industry perspective, I was highly criticized about our digital first approach to customer success. Because historically, customer success meant you would hire a bunch of CSMs and you would send them a portfolio of customers and they would manage those accounts. And I didn't have the luxury of resources. And so kind of leveraging my background in the big data analytics, you know, we actually went and created a digital first approach, which is, you know, what, what now everybody calls, you know, how do we address the long tail? Well, that's where we started. We started with, you know, realizing that 96% of our install base didn't warrant a, a human touch because of the dollar value of the account. But in aggregate, it was more than 50% of the revenue of the product. So we knew we had to pay attention to that install base, but we couldn't do it with just, you know, throwing people at it. And so that's where this that's where this whole customer success program started was a digital first approach. And I would say now from an industry, especially after COVID, where many, many CS organizations maybe lost their budget and still expected to deliver. Now this whole digital CS thing started becoming more real. And so to answer your question about where automation fits, you know, it comes back down to, in my personal opinion, it comes down, down to a segmentation exercise, right? You're, you're going to have customers that are, are large enough that still require a level of presence from a human, right? But, you know, there's, there's a watermark where, you know, any customer before below that watermark still should feel like they're your only customer, but you can't afford to throw people at it. And so I feel like, what we've done very early on is, you know, really hone in on what that segmentation model looks like and have kind of a three-tier engagement model. One is, you know, purely digital. The other one is kind of a mixed mode hybrid. And then the other one is it's it's a high touch, but the high touch is supported by the digital. So now even in a high touch model, it's what we would call on the AI side, the assisted model, where you have the automation and the, and the AI in the background supporting, but it's it's basically still human led, but it's assisted by by the technology. Indeed. And I, I think it's something I know folks are asking themselves a lot inside customer experience and, and outside, whether you're in the B2B space or something a little bit more sector specific, financial services, retail, etc. But I think often 
how this ends up looking or how it ends up looking from a dashboard perspective in a lot of these conversations is some sense of a co-pilot. And I know this might beg a larger question or a larger mention of large language models, but there's this sense that, especially from the customer experience side, especially from the enterprise side, it's going to be a lot of technology providing context for a human agent to be making a, a summarization uh, uh, about even in the B2B spaces, even in, in those sales cycles, even in upsell opportunities. Is, is that largely what, what you're seeing in terms of, of how the AI is going to help? Even for all that it's automating, it's going to be providing a lot of alternatives rather than just kind of closing off loopholes on on very repetitive tasks. Yeah, I think that comes down from people's, I would say, maybe apprehensiveness and 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 still you know really putting toe in water and figuring out what are the risks behind this right i think that right now as we start seeing this whole cognitive ai and chat gpt continue to evolve i don't know that anybody's really ready to let it let it let it out or loose on its own just yet i mean i think i go, I, I go back to my segmentation conversation so giving you a little bit more context again going back on on our previous model with with aruba is we've actually taken our digital engagement map and we've actually personified it we very early on created a fictional character animated character named steve and steve is the one that actually does all the onboarding and and actually does the walkthrough videos and this type of stuff right and so and, and you know it started you know it, it's evolved quite a bit initially steve was essentially just you know like a video then it's become a little bit more interactive where Steve actually does month in reviews. You can click on the content and just receive what you want. And then, you know, you get it on your mobile phone. You get it, you get, you get it, you know, via email or through your portal. I feel like the opportunity for that tech tech segment for us is I feel like the cognitive AI thing can potentially give Steve a heartbeat, right? To your point, I feel like people, because of their, I would say, apprehensiveness of really kind of open this thing up, we're going to be testing it out and that's where the co-pilot thing comes in is just making sure that whatever this thing is recommending is is kind of you know aligned with what we wanted to say but you know in my case when i say give steve a heartbeat we can ring fence you know the the use cases where it can be unattended right giving it a library to go and choose from and, and basically be able to have an interactive conversation with customers on specific topics rather than letting it loose on our entire knowledge base and, and internal content and that risk of not knowing what it would be exposing, right? So I think my whole thought process here is, is that if you're not playing around with it now, and it's fine if you go with the co-pilot model, I think we'll eventually continue to evolve you know, beyond the co-pilot. But right now, if you take a look at the use cases, I think that there are use cases where it can kind of run independently with some pretty strong ring fencing. But I do think the majority of what we're going to see here in the next couple of years is going to be a lot more of that co-piloting, which is it's providing a lot of that information, you know, even to support engineers. Support engineers can be using it to go in and, and query information or get advice on what it thinks is going on with the customer and just feed that over. But at some point, I do think that the level of trust and not only the responses, but also the security will be addressed and, and it'll become more common practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Carlos, thank you so much for being on the program with us this week. I, th I, I think this was really illuminating, especially for looking at sectors that we don't get a chance to really sit in the room with every day, like looking at everything from a B2B perspective and a hardware perspective. We really appreciate it. No, no. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
Wrapping up today's episode, I think what Carlos had to say about digital first approaches, just stretching back to his experience at Aruba that brought him to Hewlett Packard in the first place and learning the hard way about cognitive AI and the difference that he explains where co-pilots are really going to come into play in the near future as these technologies take hold. I think especially that generation. I, I come from a company previous to Emerge that came up in, in both the dot-com bubble and and in the early AI rush, if we want to call it that. I don't mean to echo the 1849 gold rush in too much a way. I, I think it can be described in so many historical terms. I've heard Sputnik. I think listeners at home know my fondness of of calling especially open AI's explosion on the scene and Ed Sullivan moment. But really stretching back to where I think in 2015, a lot of players came to the scene. And I think Carlos's experience really extends itself to, I think that particular generation is, is gonna have a lot to say about this first phase of AI implementation. Arguably, we could call them the first and what we're going through right now, the second, in terms of phases and adoption. They knew about it first. If you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, I think we've reached the point where, you know, it's past the specialist and it's well onto something that even mom can talk about. I know my mother can, and I think a lot of folks at home tuning in, I think their mothers can talk about this stuff at well to a certain degree. Maybe we'll have them on the podcast. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.